1: Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 997. If you're going to be in Nashville or Salt Lake City, um, Nashville at the end of May, Salt Lake City the next weekend in June, uh, I'll be doing the stand-ups. And uh, I'm actually playing music on stage now, which is a strange... I mean, I, I always did it with Mike Furman, but he's a really good musician <laughs> and great per- great musical performer and comedian. And so I'm... Uh, I've been kind of learning how to play guitar so come on out for that uh, i will be at zany's in nashville and then at wise guys in salt lake city uh, the shows have been really fun so please 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 come out um, and uh get tickets before they're gone oh, links are at id10t.com and now it's time for the corkboard. this is the id10t community cork board. you being a part of the id10t community i assume if you're listening to this uh, if you're new welcome and uh, if you're not, thank you. This comes from Charlie and Michael, who write We're Charlie and Michael, the hosts of Eat Your Veggies, a nutrient dense podcast serving the best in art and pop culture. We've read, watched, and played so much in our 10 years together, as well as listened to so many podcasts. Uh, of which yours is a fave. Thank you. Through casual but thoughtful conversations, we hope to elevate what some consider lowbrow media and make the highbrow more accessible. We're coming up on episode five, which is a comedy roundup, including Broad City, The Other Two, and Veep. As a budding podcast, we could use the boost as we start to create a community where people proudly share the art they're passionate and nerdy about. Sound familiar? Very good job, Charlie and Michael. So there you go. Hopefully uh, this boost provides a nice kick-up into the podcast stratosphere. And well done and congratulations on launching the show. Steven writes, My good friend Michael Guest and his business partner Chris Abel have been operating New Wave Pro Wrestling since 2014. On Saturday, May 4th, they're hosting the third annual Bash for Babies at the Putnam County Fairgrounds. Located at 191 U.S. 231 in Greencastle, Indiana. This year's special guest is WWE Hall of Famer badass Billy Gunn. The event starts at 7 p.m. Admission is $15. You can find tickets and more info by Googling third annual bash for babies. Uh, You get a lot of baby raves if you go up there. Just the babies with the Dr. Seuss hats and the rave whistles and the big big glasses. Um, That's really adorable. That should be a thing. I'm sure it must be a thing. This episode... Speaking of adorable, is Martin Cove. Martin plays John Kreese. First in Karate Kid, then in Karate Kid 2, then in Karate Kid 3, and then he's done a shit ton of other television and film. He was in Rambo, he was in Cagney and Lacey, and uh, he's a great guy. You know, the villains, so many of the villains, on-screen villains, <laughs> turn out to be the best people. And Marty is no exception. Yes, I get to call him Marty now. I'm I, I can't imagine what I would have told Tiny Me watching Karate Kid in the theater with my dad. Like, someday, I'm going to be pals with that guy, and I'm going to call him Marty. I don't even think I would have known how to process that. Also, what's a podcast would be my question at uh, to 11 or however old I was. So, um, uh, Cobra Kai, as you may know, because uh, a lot of people or a ton of people are watching it, is in season two now. It is available now. And if you haven't seen it... Especially if you were a fan of Karate Kid, you absolutely have to. It's such a great take on the continuation of the storyline. And season one was great. It's like ten episodes. um, And uh, season two has launched and Marty's in season two. And I couldn't be happier about it. So, uh, yeah, this is uh, the ID10T podcast number 997 with Martin Cove. Initiating ID10T protocol.
0: Thank you, thank you, Jesse, boy. We'll,
1: we'll just integrate a leg in this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this looks like straight espresso. You don't say sweet the leg? Come on. You've been hearing you that, that your leg. whole life. Uh, yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I mean, come on. That's right. the, that's a good look. Sweep the sword, you know. Sweep the sword. Sweep the... Sweep the... the Braveheart sword in there, Sweet. Somewhere, somewhere there's a, somewhere there's a yeah. sword in here. So Actually, I think there is. There's got to be... a. This is not a house without a sword. Come <laughs> you on, know man. We, I'll tell you what we don't have that's disappointing is a suit of armor. Like, we need a suit of oh, armor. Oh, you do. Yes. God. Yeah. It's the best thing to have in a house because you never know. Like, those are the creepiest things, never something inside of it yeah. <laughs> you know would be the perfect place to hide a body no one would ever think to look inside you know that's a great idea <laughs> that, that actually <laughs> should you be noted slit in the wall with like eyes you know so when you walk by it goes you like, gotta have the painting oh yeah you
0: yeah, gotta the have habits. the eyes like this yeah the, and you cut big holes so everybody makes sure you see them as they walk by your guests you don't <laughs> tell them and the eyes on the armor goes and just motion motion detection yeah, yeah. motion detection it just goes it uh, just follows uh, them. it just follows we them. have the technology have to, have to that. do
1: that now oh we do we, yeah. have,
0: we have masks we can do that with Oh yeah. we have big <laughs> masks I got in Cabo San Lucas giant masks that I put on the wall and everybody gets scared and they all say they have mirrors in the eyes and they're all to ward off the evil spirits sure and they do and people get uncomfortable seeing them in my house now we put eyes in them. Now for, they'll have a purpose. Fuck
1: <laughs> yeah, fuck it. Seriously. No. They go, oh, no, these are
0: really haunted. Right, yeah, they are yeah. haunted. Yeah, is just be abs- careful. Don't get too close. <laughs> ha- ha- Halloween is our favorite
1: time of year. We go insane for Halloween. So, <laughs> so do it's we. my favorite friggin', like, yeah,
0: we go nuts. Jesse and I, I did Hercules. Yep. So when I did Hercules out, I must have done Hercules 20 years ago in Auckland. So I, the, part of my deal was to have the Roman chess piece, the tunic, the cape. I said, I want it all. And when I'm done, you can send it back to me. And so they never sent it to me. So the two days before Halloween in 1996, the day after I did the show, I called them up. I called. And this was the same woman who won the wardrobe for the custom award for Lord of the Rings. Oh, wow. Same lady. And she and maybe, you know, she says, they haven't sent you your account for I said, no. And I wanted to wear it in two days. It's Halloween. <laughs> I'm in LA. And I'm calling her in Auckland. FedExed my entire tunic, cape, helmet, sword, everything. FedExed it all to me. And Saturday morning it arrived for Saturday night
1: Oh, that's fantastic. You know, know, it delights me to no end that you appreciate that stuff. Because that's, you know, it's like some people just sort of look at acting as like, oh, it's a job. And you go in, you say your lines, you go home. But it's always nice to know that people that you're fans of are fans that they that like to play and like to like to keep the stuff. When when I was
0: in the contract to a company called um, uh, what was it called Transworld Entertainment, mm-hmm. and they were late to a dinner party that my wife was throwing in that house I told you about in Laurel Canyon, and so I was really upset that they were late, and. I said, I'm going to, you know, punish these guys because I'm very big in the old West. So they came late for the dinner. We had the dinner and. I opened up my advent, my 1984 advent, those screen, big screens, the first ones that you pull out yeah. and three guns. And I put the last <laughs> scene of Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, the triangle gunfight on. Mm-hmm. I dressed these two straight conservative business executives. <laughs> I dressed them in dusters and six guns. And I said, we're going to walk around the living room to the final soundtrack <laughs> that Ennio Morricone did, great trumpets and all that. The final <laughs> gunfight with Lee Van Cleef, Eli Wallach, and Clint Eastwood of the Good, the the bad and the ugly and when they stop the music stops guys and I dressed them up and I made them walk around with me we go for our guns <laughs>
1: So you were playing musical guns, basically. Yeah,
0: playing musical guns because it was six minutes and, and, you know, the cuts in that scene were like eyes, guns, back of hips, you know. They were great cuts and you never knew when you are going to have to draw. And they went along with it. Yeah, they, they had to go. They were so embarrassed about being late to the
1: to this dinner that I, I said, you know, you guys are not getting dessert until you do this. You know, that is an acceptable shaming. That is an acceptable type of shaming. No one gets hurt, but it teaches them a lesson. Yeah. And I bet they were never late again after never that. Never late again. Uh, but I don't was really rude. I mean,
0: <laughs> you know, it was, I didn't have a bunch of people, it was just they, they because they were be discussing what I was on the, I was doing cajun and Lace yeah, at the yeah, time yeah. and it was in the 80s and I was willing to do two, make a deal and we were going to discuss the scripts and directors and all and they came like an hour late and I just said no. They've
1: got. To be punished. <laughs> they have to. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do they say when they're leaving at the end of the night? They had, oh, they had a great time. Oh, good. Because no one does that to yeah. these guys. Yeah.
0: No one dresses up. Can you imagine dressing up Jeffrey Katzenberg? Or can you, <laughs> can you? You know, can you? Can you
1: imagine? Put it on, Jeff.
0: You know, yeah, I mean, you, you can't do it. But these were, you know, they really wanted me. And I was hot from Karate Kid One and Two, and I was doing Cagney Lacey, and they wanted me to be in business with them. You know, so we never made the movies. I got paid for both these two pictures because we could never agree on a script of the director. And but that was two years later.
1: Oh my god! But this
0: this was the time when, you know, we thought we could all agree
1: on something. Isn't that funny that it's just the way that the business works that there are many things that just never happen. Like, how many things do you think you were involved in that you're like, oh, this is going to be great, and then it just never, it just doesn't materialize?
0: 80%. Yeah. Eight, at least 80%. And they're still going on. They still go on. And you never know what to, to say, because there are so many projects that that are really surprises, like Karate Kid. Yeah. And uh, have we been on the whole time? Yeah. That's what I figured. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so there have been so many... Interesting projects that you don't know if I didn't know. We didn't know in this movie. I I read the script, it was going to be another heavy I was going to play, and it was well written. But I never thought it would have the iconic value that it did, and nobody did. We didn't even think the the title was anything, sounding anything more than a Bruce Lee movie, Mm -hmm. you know? And eventually, you know, when when I became. Friends with um, Robert Kamen, and we discussed it a great deal, and until the edited version that he watched with John Abelson, they didn't really know they had a hit until John put it all together, because John started off as an editor back in the mid-'70s when he did Joe and all that. Mm -hmm. He was out of the early Canon Productions, a company in New York, um, that uh, he did Joe for, and he was basically an editor before that. So... I mean, I, I went to him the day after I did my scenes uh, with, in the dojo where I have the crazy stuff where I say, you know, I like that. I like that. You're a pushy little bastard. You know, and I, <laughs> I wanted that scene for my reel. So two days later, I went to John. He had it edited already. I mean, he had, he had it set up in his house, he, editing the movie daily as we went along. And finally, when he showed Robert, you know, the, his rough cut, they realized this was huge. And oh, my God. Jerry Weintraub always thought it was huge, but it's Robert and um, and John that had the great vision. And before them, Frank Price, who hired uh, Robert Mark, came into who was Frank Price was was um, Robert's protege, uh, was Robert's mentor, and um, believed in him and said, "Here's this article about a bully bullied kid. Go write a screenplay." Man, thirty five years later, we're doing a series with. The same kind of guys There's, you know Josh shield and and um, and um, Hayden and um, and John are um, brilliant fans of the genre of this movie and they write us great stuff
1: it is great and they because uh, I was telling your friend Rick uh, publicist, publicist publicist yes yeah I was telling him that and then when I, and then when when Billy and Ralph were on the podcast like a year ago, with so many things getting remade and rebooted, it would have been really easy for this to just be a lazy remake. Not, you know, like, where they didn't really focus on whether or not it was good. Like, yeah, it'll just sort of keep... But it's great! And I love this, like, complicated emotional dynamic. There's really adult shit going on with guys who cannot let it go. And I love that Daniel LaRusso, you would... The lazy version of that is, like, he lives happily ever after. But he's kind of a dick and he's haunted by stuff that happened like they just cannot get past their teenage years and i think that's such a great way to present this because uh, that's what would happen that's exactly what would happen
0: well you know this is their star wars this is i mean you know i get this nickname the darth vader of the karate world you know <laughs> and this is their you know they paid attention to it for 16 years and when I met them, the only thing that sold me, because I felt like you, we all get oh. scripts. God knows how many movies all of us have done that the producer would say, would say, it's going to be just like Karate Kid. Right. We're going to make it just like Karate And your character is going to be like, and the script was never, you know. Yeah. And so they were so adept at persuasion and adept at writing and so brilliant with their plans for the characters, that Billy and Ralph were sold straight away. And then I met them and they said, we want you to come in on the 10th episode and set up season two where you'll be a regular in season two and three. And I said, said, why can't I come in on episode five and six? And they said, because you're going to set up the second season. But they were so astute with what they had to say and why. And they knew backstories about my character that I would only give in Interviews for magazines, stuff of why John Kreese was like he was and why he, you know, what problems he had in Vietnam and why he came back and no mercy <clears throat> on all his opponents was so important to him and mercy is for the weak and how those things evolved. They knew them all. They knew all that. They knew, and when I wanted to, at the beginning, once the show had aired and I said, I have some plans for season two, and they said... Um, and I met with Army Rangers, and we talked about all this and what, how Cobra Kai got its name and all that. And they had all this stuff planned already. I, I, I met them in a restaurant in Beverly Hills when, after the first meeting, and I had yellow pad, illegal pad, all my notes that I met with with uh, my former friends, my friends who were former Army Rangers. They knew all this stuff. They had it all. Why he became a bully, flashbacks of his his childhood, I said, gee, <laughs> uh, I've, I've done five TV series, over 100 pictures. I've never worked with anybody that's researched their ass off and then can put it down on paper and then kind of perceive the future by their actions, which the future does happen. And I said this at WonderCon on the weekend. I said, I've never worked for anybody who's they're 40 years old with more energy than I have. And yet, can perceive the future of how things are going to go, per their literature and development of character, and it does. Because mm-hmm. Hollywood, how many times? What is? What do we have? Like maybe twenty percent of the people are sincere in the entire
1: city. <laughs> That's a very generous <laughs> estimation, too. Twenty percent. You know, it could be like ten, ten, eight, okay. yeah, eight, maybe eight, ten. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. They, but they've just you know, it, the the best villains aren't just black and white like they're evil and these people are good everyone's complicated and complex and understanding that you know this guy wasn't you know darth (laughs) crease maybe was anakin crease at some point you know like maybe he was a good guy that just got some hard knocks didn't really have the emotional tools to deal with them then goes and gets fucked up over in vietnam and you kinda you know, it's just, it's like that thing that Miyagi says about like just having bad teachers. He he just had like life taught him to be that way, and that's kinda why he was that way. What had you thought about like I'm sure this might be explored in the in the in season two. Do they sort of talk about what happens to him between Karate Kid two and the series? I feel like that moment where he you know, he puts his hand through the windows of the car and he's all fucked up and then it's like, oh, he got his you know he got his he got his come up and mm. and then like what do you what do you think happens to him in between these two periods?
0: Well, you know what happened is no one enrolled after Karate Kid Two. Yeah, you know, he brought which was basically the extent. You know that scene was written to be the end of Karate Kid One. Right. So it, you know it introduced him directly right after the tournament, and he you know he breaks the trophy and he strangles the son, <laughs> <He does. laughs> and and his son is. He, you know, he probably loved it, which comes out a lot in season two. You know, you'll understand that he really loved Johnny Lawrence. Mm-hmm. But what he loved more was, was Cobra Kai. Right. So you have to understand that the integrity of Cobra Kai, uh, which I can't give away much, but the integrity of Cobra Kai was somewhat, uh, it, it was troubled in season two. And um, he's got to straighten that out. And that's why he comes back in episode 10, season one. Cobra Kai is back on top. He wants to come and play. But he's got to maintain; it's it's got to be maintained as Cobra Kai. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really interesting because what he does in from episode two, he's gone bankrupt. Kids don't kids don't come and join his dojo because of the, you know, the the his actions at the end of the tournament. It goes around town, can't pay his bills, and then he's he's saved by his friend Terry Silver in Karate Kid 3. That's right. That's
1: right. That's you right. Know. To get revenge on, yes. Yeah,
0: to get revenge. And what happened to me was Karate Kid 3 was all my vehicle. It was, there was no Terry Silver. It was all written for me. And it, you know, Robert did a great job, and I couldn't do it because I got a TV series, Hard Time on Planet Earth, which is, at that time, Jeff Katzenberg. As he oh, that's
1: made. so funny. Yeah. yeah.
0: So he was the head of Disney, and I couldn't get out of the show. And oh. my agent said, I'll get you out of this series and you know you'll be able to do the movie cuz the movie's all about
1: you couldn't do it couldn't oh, do that. So, see now we got to <clears> now <throat> we got to this is where we track down Jeffrey Katzenberg and make him dress up in western gear yeah, that's it so it should have been it should yeah. have been that's so i i didn't know that that's a great bit and all it right. makes so much sense oh
0: i got on the phone with him i mean i'm here with Jerry Weintraub, John Avelson, the head of business affairs all in a room in the ad the ad says we can shoot marty out on weekends i don't know how he's going to do that cuz it was big part and john didn't want to do that and so i said one last draw let me call katzenberg it was a disney show for cbs and i said let me call jeff so i called jeff and he was you know honest he says i love you in those movies those karate kid movies i hate to get in the way but i have an air date you are the only star it's a piece called hard time on planet earth written by the same people that wrote the predator Mm -hmm. jim and john thomas and um I was the, the deal. I was coming right out of Cagney Lacey. And so I was the, the guy who was going to, you know, somewhat save the network. So, you know, they, in, in short, I couldn't do the movie I wanted to do. So I had to come in on weekends and do it. And um, I was embarrassed. I was hurt. I, I felt that I I really sort of, you know, I, I, I broke a friendship with, the producer and the writer and all that, I felt very embarrassed that they thought I might have been deliberate. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't. I was basing it on my agent telling me I could move the series or I could get you out of it. Never happened. So I came in on weekends, did did the job. And um, from then all the way to the big question is, what has happened to John Kreese after Karate Kid 3 to now, 30 years later? I would tell people because I was vowed secrecy. I was vowed secrecy not to tell anybody that I was coming back on the show on episode 10. So they made nine episodes and everybody at conventions, wherever I go, would say, aren't you coming back to the show? Aren't you going to be in that series? And I would, I would have to lie. And I'd have to lie a lot. <laughs> so I, I would make up stories that would interest me. Like I was working for the KGB, <laughs> I, would, I was working for the CIA. You know, I was in prison. <laughs> you know, so because I, everybody would ask me, and you know, they didn't believe me anything I said. They figured something else was going on. Of course, you know, you were a mercenary, and you know, blah. so. But I couldn't tell the truth, and ultimately, now I could tell the truth. You know, and um, it, it's, it's very exciting. I mean, the writing is so great. It's and And Robert loves the writing, and I didn't even know that he was being those characters were mentored by by Robert and Mark Kamen, you know and and um, they're just great guys, and they work so hard, they work you know Billy and I are going to work at six in the morning, and we're shooting in the last month. we had three crews working because all the shows were overwritten mm-hmm. because we could never do all the work in one day because they they were great, and nobody mind working late hours, and um, they were just terrific, but we couldn't get them all done in in the scheduled day. So we were doing episode four or episode two while we're shooting episode eight. Mm -hmm. And you'd have two other crews doing stuff and splintering the wardrobe and hair, and it was hard. Because chronologically, you're in one place with one episode, and then you move to another emotional chronological place, you know, three hours later in from episode four and shooting episode eight. But these these writers we'd complain, but what good was it? They were ruthless. They would go home and rewrite for the next day. They would play with the editing. They would come back in the morning and direct, all in the same twenty four hour period. And Billy and I would laugh and say, who are we to get uptight? <laughs> we're, just, we're just throwing our face in front of the camera. You know, these guys are doing four, five different jobs in the same 24-hour yeah. period. Yeah. So we'd laugh about that. And and now the show, and then when we saw the shows, we saw why. Because they're all really good.
1: Yeah. What do you think the show... <clears throat> what do you think the, the, this, uni- this world and this universe between the movies and the show, what do you think they teach people about overcoming obstacles overcoming their own personal demons like what's what do you think is sort of some of the more complex human takeaway from the story rather than just hey don't be a bully
0: well it it isn't about don't be a bully anymore we've passed that because how they wrote my character i can't give away too much there's a lot of texture there's a lot of there's vulnerability there's a lot of exciting things go on but there also is a lot of the old John Kreese that's Mm -hmm. ever-present, you know. And remember, John Kreese was a winner for a long time. And then he went to Vietnam and he wasn't allowed to win like so many of our soldiers were not allowed to win. And how, you know, many times a little child who seems to be helpless would come up to the platoon and seek chocolate or something in a Viet Cong boy, and then all of a sudden he'd press a little button and blow himself up like in Afghanistan, and I'd lose three or four platoon members, you know. And so John Creese adopted the, the concept of no mercy, and mercy is for the weak, because you deserve to have happened to you if you show weakness. Right. And he had that great chant where he said, if um, a man confronts you, he is your enemy, an enemy deserves no mercy, you know? And that's just how he thought, because he was indoctrinated with that. Prior to that, I don't believe, other than an occasional bully, which we'll see in season three, um... Or if this is season three, uh, we'll see his background. You know, we'll see why he's such a bully. Because I, I haven't gone back that far. I've only gone back into Vietnam, but they have aspirations of experiencing and re- and revisiting his early childhood.
1: Oh wow! Yeah, because he re- he's <clears> sort of you know he's this he was the oppositional force. So it makes sense to just you you really are sort of like mapping the emotional genealogy of the this world. You have to go back and see what he's like because it, it it sets in motion this whole like Rube Goldberg machine of you know em- emotions and fights and you know like and, and where everything on un- everything kind of unfolds.
0: I had a dream last night. I don't know why it came up, but I had a dream last night about an old flame of his, a woman who comes back into his life, and it wasn't it wasn't an intricate dream because we didn't get into what. It, where she's been or where I knew where I've been. But there's a lot of interesting ideas, you know, if and when we know about season three, which will be shortly. Um, There's so much to explore. Because to answer your original question, Chan, there are other levels to this character, just like there are other levels you were saying about, it isn't about bullying, it isn't black and white. Mm -hmm. All the characters are written gray. Mm Mm-hmm. In the days, I'm a big Western advocate, and the days of just black hats and white hats, and the days of the Western, they're over. Your characters have got to be like Clint, you know, mm-hmm. jaded. And, and, you know, it started kind of with the good, the bad, and the ugly, pretty much, you know, because he was the, the white, he was the good. But he wasn't good. He was a bounty hunter. He was a killer, you know, which, which Clint plays so very well. And Dirty Harry. Dirty Harry was, he was the most prejudiced, you know, son of a bitch <laughs> cop you've ever seen, you know. But that's 1972. And... and I think you know, But
1: the name Dirty is in the title. They dirty. tell you he's not a great guy right. in the title. But it was the first. <laughs>
0: so you didn't really know what that meant. Yeah. You know, Dirty Harry. You know, you, you see Naked City, you understand. The first of the cop shows. And, you, you know, you, you have all these different names, Magnum, P.I., yep. but you don't know Dirty Harry. <laughs> you know, Dirty Harry is 1972, written by my friend John Milius. And, and, you know, Dirty Harry was a cop who really... You know, do you feel lucky, punk? Yeah. You know, he, it's a mess with you. He, he was very much John Creese. You know, you just got good or you're bad. Right. If you're not on my side, you're bad. Right. You know? And he'll do
1: whatever he needs. Yeah, to, whatever he does. Yeah, yeah. Dispose of you. Exactly.
0: So right now, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's 50 years later. Mm-hmm. So you can't approach it that way anymore. But you have to approach it in a sophisticated form that they write John Creese, Because John Creese does think society has gotten soft the kids the concept of kids getting trophies for participation doesn't work mm-hmm. you know and i don't analyze it with how i feel because how i feel you know you often think about kids that are not as good as the as the better athletes so therefore even if they try they should be rewarded for that effort that's martin cove but i don't really know if giving them the same trophy as you give Uh, the boy who is scoring the most goals for the soccer team. I don't know if it, you know, I I don't know if it equates. I'm not sure I haven't figured that out yet. But John Kreese doesn't think it's even necessary.
1: Yeah, but it's also interesting that, you know, so Johnny is basically he's sensei to this ragtag group of nerds, which is great. I mean the 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 idea of like putting these kids with him rather than just putting duplicates of a young John Lawrence like that Cobra Kai is basically fundamentally these nerdy kids and they start to especially the kid Hawk he goes nut he goes crazy and you under but you understand why because he is bullied himself and you know when people are bullied one of two things happens they either become very compassionate or they become very uh, protective and aggressive and angry. And that's what happens to this kid. And But you kind of watch it happen. So you go – like if, if, the, if the series just dropped and you saw this kid with a mohawk, you'd be like, what a dick. But because you see how this cycle of bullying like propagates and replicates – you you understand like yeah of course that kid's probably going to turn out that way and then he has these kind of leanings and then he gets this one teacher that gets in his head and then that and that's what happens like that's the formula so it's it's such there's such an interesting like <laughs> like anthropological experiment behind it as well sure
0: but that's you know that's that's because it always amazes me that I can talk to these writers about anything and they have a hook on it yeah I took them. these are guys who wrote Harold and Kumar, Hatsup Time Machine. They're great. I took them a month and a half ago to the Gene Museum, to the Wells Fargo Theater for a night of Ennio Morricone music. Oh, wow. With a choir, an orchestra. And, you know, I bought the tickets and I said, I'm taking you guys just, you know, I want you to experience a little bit of my world because I live by that music, you know. And um, they, you know, they knew a lot about Ennio Morricone. And when the movie's, that he scored came up that most of them were remote Italian movies. He scored 400 pictures and most of them we never heard of. They were all Italian pictures that just didn't make it here. And it was brilliant. And it was the ones we heard other than the good, the bad and the ugly and, and fistful of dollars and all those. But he, you know, he did the mission. He did the untouchables. He did just brilliant stuff. And they were all very well versed at that, you know? So, no matter what, how we approach the characters, they've come from all different sides, which is amazes me about writers, that the real good ones can come from all different sides of the character, his youth, his, his adolescence, what he was like with his parents, what he was like with his friends, what he's like with the woman he loves, the girl he loves. Does she? Is the woman he married very much like the, his mother or is the woman he married very much like his first girlfriend, you know, or his sister,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
0: they take in consideration all the elements of character development. And I've done some, you know, good series. Cadney Lacey was very well written. Six years on cadian and Lacey and multitude of cast members. And the writing was pretty good, really good. And um, two or three other shows, but nobody's ever done this. No one's ever approached it from all these different angles in a very short period of time. Well
1: people didn't really do that in the eighties. I think I think Cagney and Lacey was like eighty two to eighty eight or something. It was like yeah, right smack dab in the middle. And we it wasn't uh it wasn't as common on television like be, you know, just because of the episodic nature of shows, and it's like all, all these shows you you knew the characters, but every episode was self-contained, pretty much. Yes, and uh, and so just because of the simplicity, and television's changed a lot now, but it was just easier. It's like these are the good characters, these are the bad characters. The good characters are going to catch the bad characters, and it's going to all wrap up at the end of each episode. You know, it's just like a it's a low stakes low stakes dramatic arc for for people, but now. You know, audiences are a little more sophisticated, and they've seen a lot of stuff, and they need a little more. And they, and so I think they they need these characters to be. You know, if 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 it was too white hat black hat, people would be like, ah, I don't, I don't know if I buy it. You know, but this is a, you know, this is a story that it's like, you buy it, it makes sense. You know, it makes sense. Well, the anthological part of of new television
0: is what stimulates audiences, I think, where, you know, where every show is hooked into the next one, you know, and in the 80s, no, we didn't do that in the 80s. It was just act one, act two, act three, <laughs> you know, and, um, yeah. I, and I, you know, I try to think about where that began because of your, one of my favorite shows was the newsroom with Jeff Daniels. Mm-hmm. I, I loved it. You know, I love Outlander. Yeah. You know, I love Outlander. And um, I cry when I watch Outlander. I just—it's so romantic, and it's—it's it's so what I want to do. I want to touch a rock and go back. You <laughs>
1: transport to go yeah, back in time. I,
0: I don't even want to stay in <laughs> contemporary times. I, I really—I want to go back and touch a rock and go back into 1748. Except I don't want to fight the English and. And, and lose No No
1: You just want to like Live on a nice farm somewhere I
0: live on a farm If I have to be a warrior Once in a while and, Yeah But even Vikings I got a little turned off By Vikings Because they were Killing so much And it was so glib When they did it Yeah You know It was, it was treated As if it was farming Right You know And um, But I liked I liked that period I mean the old western I mean I, I've Gone to mediums And chatted with them And I was definitely In ancient Rome And And um I was a, according to the mediums I was a, um I was a, um, a soldier and what do they call me I was a soldier, cuz my name Martin means warlike in Latin okay and so I think Oh that, from Mars yeah from Mars or um it's uh Martin means warlike and I guess maybe the derivative of MAR maybe so I don't remember but in Latin it means warlike and, and um, I don't like war. I'm really a pacifist. You know, I mean, I don't, but I mean, I'm really a character from the old West that wishes I was still back there, you know, but uh, there's so many places, you know, that, that I'd love to go back. I was born on the day the Alamo fell. So I was definitely metaphysically, <laughs> you know, I start a movie in Dallas tomorrow. I go to the tomorrow with Stephen Lang and William Sadler and
1: Fred Oh, he's Fred great. Williams and, oh, yeah,
0: man. It's called VFW and it's all about, it's the Expendables in a bar, in a, in a uh, Veterans of Foreign Wars bar that we all frequent. And we were all together in Vietnam, and now we we are in a siege fighting bad guys. And it's really interesting because, you know, it's it kind of, a lot of this character is John Kreese. It's him reverting back to war times, which John Kreese often does when things don't work out and Cobra Kai is not respected. Mm-hmm. The concept, the integrity of Cobra Kai not respected. It's like someone coming in and not respecting your child. Right. You know, some some cleaning person came in and pushed a kid aside because he couldn't clean the carpet. You know, he'd go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's what it's like. You know, and this, this character, you know, he, he just, he's, he's rich, like John Creese, and he's a lot like John Creese, But John Creese is flawed, but so is everybody else in the show, which makes it so attractive. Right. And we all follow, and they write where you binge. You really need to know what happens the next episode. Right. So if you're you know, like lucky enough to do it and see all 10 in one night, you'll do it. Otherwise, you'll break it into two parts. But my son... My son Jesse, who you know, is just my sort of like my co-manager. He's brilliant. He's an actor. He's 28. We did a bunch of movies together, and he—he he, he watched episode uh, season one and just redid and redid my entrance like five, six times because he got such a kick out of it. Because he's a big kid, I kind of looked back and I, I kept thinking, "Well, what am I going to do next? How many?" What am I going to do in season two? I really look good in season one. What the hell am I going to do? They better write me some good stuff, and they did. They really did, and and the show the show is terrific. We watched all ten episodes, and
1: it's it's wonderful. I love how passionate you are about the Old West, and you said your house sort of is very Western. What is it about the Old West that is attractive to you? Is it the simplicity? Is it the white hat, white hat, black hat? Is it the sort of the pioneering or the establishing of a society? What What is it?
0: It's it, you know, I mean, you hit it. It's like the establishing of a society of how difficult it was. That's when Americans were so extremely strong, and even John Kreese feels this way. Yeah, that's what we, they pushed west. Because of uh, because of uh, religious persecution or whatever, whether they were immigrants or whether they were just Americans who were adventurous, but you fought the weather. I mean, just imagine the Oregon Trail. Imagine you know coming across the uh, uh, the center of the country and and the um, uh, where Lewis and Clark had mapped. I mean. It was 1840, 1850, 1860, even before the railroad, and there were people who didn 't want to work who were bad guys who could raid your house at any time. There was never sheriffs or marshals really within a hundred miles unless you had a little farm very close to a town and it was just a time of, of bravery and, and courage and not knowing the elements and just dealing with it one step at a time for a new life and I often think about that because L.A. has gotten tough. It's tough to live here, you know, the traffic and this and that, yet I would miss my family if I left, and I have a a year-and-a-half-old grandson that I adore, So, and my kids are 28, so I I kind of would love to leave and have my ranch and a couple of horses, except, you know, um, it's it's hard because business is here, and, and you want to cultivate, you know, a lot of interesting things, and... But when I work in Atlanta for three months, it's it's wonderful. If I ever get the time, I'd go out, and get a horse, and just go out to the to the outskirts and just ride. You know, I just watched uh, the, the Highwaymen with. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, I saw the trailer for that. Good stuff, and they shot in Atlanta. And you know, I I, I was asked to do one of the parts in that. Um, it was just a small part, and I, I just didn't, I wanted to do it because it was with Kevin, but. It, I I didn't. And um, because he and I did Wyatt Earp, and he's just a terrific filmmaker. But, you know, in short, it's just um, I think that coming out west and the fact that the Western itself was the first American cinematic heritage, it's our heritage on film. Because back in the days of 1906, when they did the first um, silent Western, which was called The Great Train Robbery, Mm -hmm. All the people who were at Gunfight OK Corral, all the people who lived in Tombstone and lived in Dodge City and lived in really tough towns like Deadwood and all, they were still around in 1906. So when they were making these movies about these outlaws and about the situations in these western towns, that all happened in 1870, 1880, 1890. So it came around 1906. A lot of those people were still around. Whether they lived in Chicago or they lived in Kansas City or wherever there was a movie theater, you know, they would come and hear about this thing called the silent movie, and most of the films were westerns mm-hmm. from 1920 to 1967. One of every pick, th- one of every three pictures coming out of this town was a western, and that's why it's such an overexposed genre now. It's hard to get them going because everybody, like you said earlier, everybody sophisticated has such sophisticated tastes you got to really entertain them to have them gravitate to your project
1: right yeah but it's you know it's funny that we watch a you know people watch a show like survivor or naked and afraid like oh my gosh those people boy they they lived in the elements for like two weeks you know and uh, and it was just a period of time where literally death was around every corner the elements, the animals, you know, whatever it was, um, other humans, like it was, I, it's I get anxious even thinking about it because most people now would not be prepared for that kind of lifestyle. We've, we've gone, if is you know, the way that you describe him, then he would absolutely would think we've all gone soft. What is this? Crease packs
0: when he goes to the bathroom.
1: (laughs) He's ready for a fight. He's ready for a fight in the bathroom. And he lives there, you know?
0: You know. So it's really, yeah, it's how you look at it. I mean, but that that's really you're you're 100% right. When we go camping now, and it's a good example, you go camping in the wilds you know and I like camping you know, every year we go to the Hole in the Wall where Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid used to hide out and it's a group that I go with with about 30 40 members Hole in the Wall gang and we ride for four days in Chaps and Dusters full vintage cowboy vintage and we are going in places that they're hairy I mean there are a you know it's KC Wyoming it's out there and um, you know you fly to Casper Wyoming you drive 90 minutes to KC Wyoming then you driving a truck 90 minutes into the prairie, you know. Whether it's that or you're camping in Big Sur, there's a lot of unsurety there Mm -hmm. that, you know, the public now, they don't indulge in enough. You know, probably, you know, if you go to Oklahoma City to the Cowboy Hall of Fame events and all that, everybody knows it, you know. But in the big cities, I think people shy away from that. And here in L.A., a lot of people like to go to Cabo, They'll so go ahead to go to where it's simple and elegant.
1: Well, our weakness is, is that we, you know, we will always gravitate toward comfort it, physically, emotionally, you know, and I think that's I, – I, obviously, crease is the far end of the spectrum, but it feels like we should be more comfortable with some discomfort, you know, because that does make us stronger and, and seeking comfort – always 100% of the time seeking comfort is not going to prepare you for anything and that's how you know that's how you can get taken advantage of or lose stuff or not be prepared or, you know. And so it's – there is some of it that – like a, d- a little degree of it, but just in moderation, you know. And so we're just, it's just trying to figure out like what – to what degree should we, you know, seek some discomfort once in a while.
0: When, when, when you go horseback riding and, and you're up there alone and I took a friend of mine who's in the garment center years ago. I took him riding up in Colorado with one man as our guide. And um, Chuck was our guide, and he came with a very green pack horse. And the pack horse was very green, and somehow he he fell off the ledge. We're up a place called Yampa, and we're up like, you know, 12,000 feet riding on ledges to camp, to go to this campsite. And there's only three of us, and my friend was apprehensive about a lot of stuff, very nervous fellow. And my friend David and um, Chuck, pack horse, went sideways down the ledges to a ledge, and of course pulled his horse and him down this ledge, twenty feet. So thank God no one got hurt or anything. But my friend looked at this and he 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 just was so nervous and he didn't know what to do. And I was off, you know, I had I had dropped something and I wasn't there to watch. And I had gone back about a quarter of a mile to pick up something, my binoculars or whatever. But the bottom line was, I, I got there and my friend, he, he couldn't enjoy the rest of the ride because the comfort zone <laughs> of the, the guide falling down, if the guide falls down, what's going to happen to me? And he was really nervous. And I took a volume and I said, David, open your mouth. I threw a, I threw a five gram volume into his mouth, right? And... He was good, and every like six hours he would get a little antsy, and I'd say, "David, open up!" I go boom, and I would throw a, a five gram volume in his mouth, and and he was good for the whole trip, and it became a monumental trip, and we went up twelve thousand feet to this area. It was all the, you know, the um, there were, uh, the tops of trees. It was great, the um, timberline, and he never forgot that. But it was all about not being comfortable and yet the beauty of being on top of the mountain and seeing what it's like up there. And it's like you say, the when it's tough you learn a lot yeah. more. As an actor. When it's tough and you can't master a character, you will struggle and struggle and struggle. But by the time you get to that point you said there's beauty at the end, it correlates with being on at campsite and seeing what the hell we just went through with the guide and all I experienced and then getting to Timber and it was all worth it. Yeah. And as an actor, you get a part that, that's really rough and you can't put it together and you spend a lot of time with your coach. But when you shoot it and you just let it all go and then people come up to you and say, that was fantastic. And then when you like it, I rarely like anything I do. But when you like it, then you know you've done something right and that's the luxury of acting.
1: Yeah. And you've done some great, I mean... You, and you were, you did a, you did a Rockford Files, didn't you? You've done some legendary, legendary television. I would imagine you probably did all the rounds. You probably did a Rockford Files, maybe a Streets of San Francisco. Right. You probably like, did you do this? Did you read this? I knew about Rockford Files, uh-huh. and I'm just guessing on the other ones because. Yeah, you're right. What, because,
0: else? what else? What else? Where did other
1: ones? Oh my God! See how good you well, you must have done. There, did you ever do like um, uh, like SWAT or like emergency nine like any of those like yeah. uh, meta, Medical shows or uh, rescue shows? Well, I
0: did the rescue show. It was called Code R. It was, it was a lifeguard, fireman, or policeman. We lasted one season. And it was during that period of time. It was 1976. But the show I did afterwards leads in. It, it's just, I did a Charlie's Angels. And I, <laughs> and I kidnapped Sammy Davis Jr. Oh,
1: my God. Yeah. Did, and he played himself in the show. He played himself, yeah. Yeah.
0: And he's a great fast draw artist. I mean, the cat could draw fast. And we're talking westerns like you and I are. And we're in his motorhome and he pulls out this <laughs> oh, uh, pull out this double rig, gorgeous double rig. And it was carved by Arvo Ojala and was had his initials on it. And of course, you know, it fit his waist. And we're fast drawing. He's putting me to sleep with this. You know, boom, boom, boom. And he, he's so fast. He was the fastest in Hollywood. No one knew this because he didn't do very many westerns. And he gave it to me. Gives me this double black leather rig. I couldn't wear it around my waist because my waist was too big. But I had it for years. And I do, Quentin calls me to come and play and do his movie. And I was ecstatic. And I said, this thing's been sitting on my saddle since 1977. Who would love this more than anybody else, of anybody I know? So the day, so the, the week I'm working with Quentin... I bring it, and I say, if I'm going to have a good day, I'll give it to him.
1: If I feel really good, I'll give it to him. You know? You were auditioning him. I was. I was.
0: (laughs) And he was so terrific. He was so much fun. And, you know, he's such a, you know, we we kind of did this scene where I put my, I'm, I'm sitting on a chair leaning back like this. Uh like Henry Fonda did in My Darling Clementine, this very classy scene where Henry Fonda is playing Wyatt Earp. And it's a very classic scene, and he puts his feet up on a post and does this little thing. He's waiting for someone. And, you know, I knew the scene. And he says, you know the scene? I said, yeah, what do you think? You're the only one who knows it? My <laughs> Darling Clementine? It's a John Ford classic, you know. And he was great. He was great the whole day. And at the end of the day, and I've told this story before, at the end of the day, he says, you know, I got everything I want. Because my stuff was all with the and Western sequence. And he says, I think I got everything I want, Marty, but I want one more. And he turns around to, the, to his all his 100 crew members and says, And why? And all of them say in unison, Because we love to make movies. Oh, that's so sweet. I, I, it brought tears to my eyes. And then I decided I got to give him my holster. So I went back to my trailer, came back, gave it to him. He was ecstatic. He, he just – he's just terrific. He's a guy, the guy to work for. That's why people work for him for no lines. People work for him to do dual roles, you know, because he's just – he loves making movies and he loves working with actors.
1: But I also like the idea that that you saw this thing that had been given to you and a lot of people would have taken that to their grave, maybe even been buried in it. But – that you were – because, you know, you see you see, we collect a lot of stuff here too, like a lot of memorabilia stuff and things that are important to us. But just sort of knowing like, well, I'm like the temporary custodian of this thing and at a certain point – I need to pass it to someone else who hopefully will then pass it to someone else, you know, much in the same way that we, you know, that stories were told, Mm -hmm. you know, so you've passed this experience to him and hopefully, you know, someday it'll go to someone else and then they will take, you know, take care of it temporarily. But that's, I I didn't know that about Sammy Davis, Jr.
0: Yeah. He was great. You are a romantic, Chris. I I am. You are. I mean, that just was in your house, but just to think that way, because that is how things should get passed down. Yes. Not, not thrown in some auction somewhere, and, and you know, even if it's in an auction, I guess that that means that constitutes that it's passing down to someone. But when you know who it's passing down to, that they'll appreciate, you know, whatever, you know, I, it's, um, you know, it, it's very exciting. There are certain things I keep. Um, I kept my big cutout that was in my dojo. Oh, that's awesome. You know, I have that. <laughs> And I have a lot of things I gave to charity. A lot of the Rambo stuff I gave to charity, the vests and everything. But there are key things you keep to pass down, you know, and uh, the key pictures and things like this to pass down to your kids when you pass, you know. And, and there are certain things that really move you early on in your career that you you just you, you know, just like your first press kit,
1: you know, yeah, from your first series. Well, yeah, know? because it, it's all. Um I mean the idea of ownership is an illusion. We're never we're not here forever, you know. So it's like we just sort of we're curators for a while and then it's you know, hopefully some of these things survive and get passed down and they're yeah. meaningful to other people. What was your first press kit?
0: First press kit was uh Hard Time on Planet Earth. Oh it was. That was the first press kit and it was it was really good. I mean, it was the series that I starred in without the girls and I don't remember a Code R press kit. And then I did another series after, right after Code R called um, um, We've Got Each Other, which was a sitcom. I don't think there was a press kit there because I joined the series after the first episode. Um, but I still have the Karate Kid press kit. I still have a press kit of Steel Justice, my first romantic action picture that I starred in, you know. And and um, I try to collect them, you know, I I... I Things you're proud of, Mm -hmm. you know. It's a lot of stuff that, you know, I'm past the stage of taking on a movie where I was arrogant enough to say, I can, the script is okay, but my performance, you know, it's a good character. I really like the character. I could fix the script with my portrayal. (laughs) Those days of the arrogant level of thinking that have passed because if it's not on the page, no matter what you do, it's not going to enhance it any. Right, right. So I I, I just, you know, try to wait to get to work with guys like, you know, like uh, John, Josh and uh, Hayden because it's just really lucky. It's the gift that keeps – these guys are the gifts that keep giving and I, you know, I I just think we're real lucky.
1: What do you think – even – I'm just kind of thinking about what you said about Ennio Morricone – and also just the idea that, you know, gosh, 80% of the things that we do, that we try to do, don't even make it, don't even make it to, to people's eyes. And then of the 20% that do, you know, a percentage of those, it's like a lot of people don't see or it doesn't work out or whatever. And so you've had a, you've had a career in this business for so long. What do you, how do you, how do you define success? You know, is it material? Is it experiential? Is it is it a personal thing? Is it, you know, obviously it's, it's not incredibly healthy to think it's based on what other people think, but we do fall into that trap sometimes. So what is it? You know, even just hearing about Ennio Morcone, it's like, yeah, he's done like 400 things. And most people will never know about the majority of those things. So what is it? Like, what do you think defines success in this business?
0: You know, it's a question that comes up all the time because kids come up to you and say, what is it? You know, what? What, what, do you th- what advice do you have for me? What? And tell me, what do you think your break was? I don't think I've had a break. I don't think of it. You know, they talk about you being an icon. People use that word all the time. I don't think of myself as an icon. Sean Connery is an icon. <laughs> you know, Anthony Hopkins is an icon. Jack Nicholson is an icon. You know, I mean, Bobby De Niro is an icon. So you just John Wayne, all those people. I don't think of myself as being there, but. I, I I get asked what what do you think your break was? I don't think I've had a break. The break is realizing that the work requires at any age that the work requires complete um, devotion to finding out what about three stages what you were like as a kid in your background what would you like growing up and what's happening to you now, you know. And to really delve into the character and create backstory, for me, works enormously. And that, to me, when I think I've done all those things, then I think the character is going to be successful. I haven't had a chance this week to work out all those things on that character in VFW. And, you know, he's a car salesman, and he's the only guy of all the guys that's got something going in his life. Everybody else is kind of alcoholic and hangs out at the VFW and... I haven't done that work yet for for myself. I've been doing press crazy, so I haven't had a minute, and I'm getting insecure about it because we start shooting Monday. So I got to really work on it over the next few days. And I leave tomorrow, and we're going to have four days of rehearsal, and I'll, I'll work it out. But the thing is, is that that's what's important to me. That constitutes success. If I've done that for the character, I can't. I used to beat myself up if the movie didn't do well, and. I said, what could I have done? It was better. Why couldn't I make it better? You can't. There's so many elements that go into a successful project. Distribution, promotion, a good director, great chemistry with all the actors, a good script. You know, you're going to have, and it's got to be the right time of year to let it go. There are so many elements that constitute a success. And what constitutes a successful career? I think good representation, doing good projects, not falling into the thing I fell into of thinking I could fix stuff, mm-hmm. you know? And I think the key the key for me is what you said before. We do get caught up in external gratification and what people think of you and what they write of you and all that. Some of it's true. Some of it isn't. And I think it's really hard. I think you have to stay away from the printed matter because, I mean, I... Right now, we've had nothing but great printed matter. You know, we had 24, 24 reviews were great. We had 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. We're the most successful show in 2018 via Rotten Tomatoes. And, um, But yet, you can't just read that. You just got to do the work. You got to still worry about John Kreese. You got to still worry about what's he going to deal with in season, you know, when they announce a season three, what. It's going to happen to him, and you gotta, you got to spend time with it. That constitutes success for me, you know, when a character is exciting to watch on screen. You know, and I've done X, Y, and Z. Some of them were. Some of them the guy laid there like a lox. He just <laughs> did, you know. I mean, I, I was either confused or it, it wasn't written well, and I had the thing about, you know, analyzing my character and think, feeling I could do a better job. Without doing the backstory, wrong. You just have to do the work. And if you do the work, that's what I always enforce on my son, you do the work. We just did a, we saw some footage that he did, a movie called Blood and Sand. It's a terrific story. A couple of, uh, a platoon just before D-Day takes out these howitzers that would have destroyed all the battleships on Omaha Beach. And this is a real story. It happened two days before. Uh, june 6th d-day and jesse stars in it with uh weston cage nick's son Mm -hmm. and um they i saw the footage yesterday it was brilliant and it's a little movie out of asylum and it's a terrific little picture and what he did was brilliant because it was a character under stress of war Things it's something like he's never done before. A character in the stress of war, a war paint, not wanting to be there, the level of expediency, the level of, of jeopardy that he was under in World War II, that our boys were under. Um and it was wonderful. Best work I've ever seen him do. And it was all because of all these elements that you have to just osmos into when you're doing a period piece, which I think period pieces are the best. I'm not into contemporary John Creese is not a temporary <laughs> character. John Kreese is a throwback of, the, you know, if Wyatt Earp got sick, he'd take his place, right. you know? So that's the deal, you know, is, and that's what I love. I, that's why I love Westerns and love, you know, going back in, in time and playing anything of the past because somehow all the elements of the past add to me to my better interpretation as an actor of the character. It just does.
1: And you also just never know you know, there's just something about staying on the train long enough in the business. It's like of, of the million things that you've done, you know, I'm sure having people this many years later shout, sweep the leg at you, you know, it like it, it never were you. Was there ever a point where you're like, yeah, 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 I get it. I remember, but I've done other stuff, you know, like what's the – because you seem so cool with it and so cool with the fans and so – so happy that this thing has survived for so long did you always that have have that appreciation for it
0: well i i did i think it did i thought it was a classic movie we went to the emergency room last night and my my um little um grandson had a stomach problem and he's real little so we took him to the emergency room and an old man african-american old man came up to me waiting in the emergency room and he says in his real gruff voice he says and this was 11 o'clock at night, because I, I just zoomed over there when I heard that he was not well. And he says, you're in the movies, aren't you? He says, I didn't want to come over and talk to you, but I didn't want to bother you. But I know you're in the movies. You were in the movies, weren't you? And I And I said... And I was wearing—I was—I was wearing a cobra Kai tank. <laughs> I was wearing a cobra Kai tank top, and I also was wearing—I had come right from my workout, so I had cobra Kai running down my leg on my pants that I was wearing too. And I said, I smiled at him, and I said, "I still am." <laughs> and and he—he—I he, don't think he got it, but it didn't matter because I didn't want to make him uncomfortable. Sure. And and he just smiled, and he says, "I." I knew you were. And he just moved up back and just hung by the wall. He was waiting for emergency. It was the emergency room. And it just, you know, it just showed you that it's all, I, I love that movie. It's great. Have I done other things? Yeah. Does everybody really remember Sweep the Leg, Mercy for the Week? They remember it more because... It's an iconic movie like Casablanca, my favorite yeah. film of all time. Yeah. People remember played against Sam. It's, they were, they may remember that we made a movie about Play called Played Against Sam. You know, uh, I rather it was a movie that became pretty popular that uh, um, um, Woody Allen did. So, anyway, the, the point being is that is that you, you just live with it because. I still live in fantasy. I still have my, you know, stuff on the walls and you try to do Westerns. If you get it, you get it. But I, I, you know, you think you've done other things, but it's what's what's good that you really remember. There's a lot of stuff that you've done that you don't think about. Some of those episodic shows, you know, it's a different world making an episodic show in those days. You know, the use of the Zoom lens and, you know, no one would dare do that today, you know, because... audiences are so much more sophisticated so if you please the audiences today I think you've accomplished something you know, if you, it, and if it's run from 1984 all the way to now and they're still talking about it like Casablanca like The Searchers, like Red River like The Wild Bunch all these classics like Star, Star Wars I mean how many movies you, you can actually conceive the movies we remember lines from If you went going as far back as Casablanca, we'll play it again, Sam. Or The Searchers, all right, Pilgrim, you know, or The Force Be With You, or or Sweep the Leg, and Mercy is for the Weak. I mean, if you really just go back, there's only maybe 10 movies we really remember in the last 50 or 60 years that you say these lines from. And those movies, I believe, if you're part of any of those, it just allows you to survive in this
1: insane business. <laughs> and also you make people happy. Like yeah. you connect with people. This guy who came up to you in the emergency room, that allowed you to connect with someone that you maybe you like just someone randomly in public that you wouldn't have thought you would have had a moment with. And and ultimately that's you know, that's part of the human experience. And you yeah. you're the catalyst for that. You know, you're a catalyst for that. And This has been such a pleasure talking to you. I really appreciate that you came in. Thank you. And and congratulations on VFW, which you're about to go shoot. And then um, Cobra Kai Season 2 is on YouTube Red. Now I'm posting this when it's April. Uh, yeah. yeah,
0: April twenty fourth. I think.
1: Yeah, this goes. This will go up that day. So, uh, so oh, it's available at, as soon as this podcast is done. You can go watch all of season two of, of Cobra Kai, and I'm really excited to see. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to unpack John Kreese, but I'm also now that I've had a chance to sit and talk with you, I'm so excited to see all the other things that that you go that you do from here because it, it seems like you know, you'll work as long as you feel like working until the range fully calls you.
0: (laughs) As you know, I thought about that a lot. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, from your mouth to God's ears, you know, work as long as you want. But the range, you know, it's a a controversy. I really would like to go out there. I mean, what Kevin does is great. Kevin constantly has a place in Aspen and, and a place in Calpinteria. And, you know, he's just... He lives at that cowboy world. He makes all his movies. That's why I loved working with him and befriending him because I haven't seen him in a while. But everything he makes, whether it's Waterworld or The Postman or The Highwayman or the series he's got on TV, it's all the West.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, and that's that's interpreting it. It's all the West. It's what those heroes went through in 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 the lifetime of America. And I believe that those heroes should be celebrated, the Texas Rangers, all those characters. And they all had ups and downs politically, every one of them. But, I mean, I think, you know, there's a reason why I, I was born on the day the Alamo fell. Cause, and there's a reason why we're shooting in Dallas, leaving tomorrow, because I'm supposed to be there for a while. Yeah. You know, Texas is, I find that Texas is so solid and, and it's, it's Patriot time and it's great.
1: Well, great. Well, thank you so much for being here, Marty. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. Great. Same here, man. Thanks, man. The end.
2: This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat
1: You have just ingested via your ears, Martin Cove, episode 997 on the ID10T podcast. It's now time for some word salad wrap for this episode. Um, this, I, I saw something that I really liked on the Stoicism subreddit, uh, which I am on a lot. I'm a lurker. I've never posted anything on there. But um, there was a post by uh, user astral fatality and the post title was on letting go of regret and growing from one's past mistakes. I came up with this thought process and I thought I should share it. So, uh, well, I'll just, I'll read what it is and then I'll sort of explain it. He says, or she says, I no longer feel regret. For there was only one choice that I could have made and was variably unfit for any other choice at the given time, as no other choice was made other than the choice that was made. And any other choice that would have been made would not be the I who made the choice that I did make. Now, uh, I I think this is really kind of an important way to free yourself from the shitstorm of I should have done this I should have said that why didn't I do this why didn't I make this choice so uh, a couple months ago uh, I got to do an episode of whose line is it anyway <laughs> which was such a huge deal to me <laughs> I can't even I can't even really put words to properly express brain thinkings uh, but um, uh, it 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 was an incredible, absolutely uh, incredible experience that I certainly never thought I would get to do. Wayne Brady had been on the podcast a while ago, and I haven't posted it yet because I was waiting until I got some idea of what the air date was going to be so that I could sort of bundle it all together. But Wayne was amazing on the podcast. And so uh, we did some improvs. It was, uh, you know, it was Wayne, Proops, Ryan, Colin Mockery and uh there was one there was one scene that uh I did, and I feel like I did okay you know i I feel like I kinda held my own a bit, but then Afterwards, of course, oh, I should have said this. I should have said that. I should have said this. I should have said that. And I, I talked about. I was talking to Wayne about it afterwards, and I said, you know, that was that one was really fun, but there are like ten other things I wish I had said. And he was like, well, welcome to the curse of the improviser. You're <laughs> we always gonna sort of beat yourself up about what you should have said, but you know, but it's always. But again, the hindsight is twenty twenty thing is very true. It's always easy once you have all the information. You know what you do in the moment who you are in a moment is who you are, and that's who you were ready to be in that moment. And so to be able to take a step back and say, you know what, that's those are the choices that I made in that moment, that's what came out, and that's how it was supposed to be, does give me peace in sort of letting it go. Because you can fucking, <laughs> you can put the thumbscrews on your brain for the rest of your life if you want to replay stuff over and over and over and over and over again. Um, you know, now obviously, like... You know, if you, I don't know, if you rob a convenience store, maybe that's a choice you should feel bad about. 100% that's a choice you should feel bad about. But I just mean like in our day-to-day lives, how we invent narratives just to punish ourselves just because, you know, fuck us, we think. I deserve to punish myself all the time. Why not? Uh, Don't think that way. You don't deserve it. and You shouldn't. And this hopefully is one way to kind of free yourself of just letting go and say, you know, Whatever I chose in that moment was what it was for that moment. And you also think about it this way. You know, sometimes I'll see people watch. uh, uh, This is all going to come back around. I'll see people complain about an episode of, you know, a series, any series. And they'll go, oh, this episode, why did you know, this episode didn't have to be this way or they didn't have to do X, Y, or Z. And I always think to myself. Well, you don't know that because you haven't seen the whole series yet. So you don't know if and when that thing that you thought was useless is going to pay off. And so that's what I would say about our own lives is you don't know how the story ends. So whatever choice you made in a certain moment or whatever thing came out, you don't know if that's going to lead you to something better. Even if you think it's bad. You know, you're clouded by insecurities and baggage and trauma and all sorts of things and and bad, bad, addictive self-flagellation habits. So you might just be programmed to give yourself shit no matter what, <laughs> which is kind of nice to think of, too, because that sort of frees you of like, oh, that's just a thing I do. Maybe it's not real. But all the thoughts that you have are not necessarily real in the sense that that doesn't mean that they're true just because you have a thought doesn't mean that it's necessarily true. So even if you imagine uh, some sort of a social situation going better, oh, I could have said this and everyone would have laughed and I would have been carried off on everyone's shoulders and everything would have been great. You still don't know that. And you still don't know where that would have led. So I would just say um, for, for today, go easy on yourself. Don't feel regret. There was one choice that you could have made. Uh, and uh, it was variably unfit for any other choice at the given time. So just free yourself from that. If you can just free yourself from little bits here and there from torturing yourself, then it will net out uh, very favorably. And think of all the, think of all the uh, inventing space you'll create in your brain to think of new ideas that aren't giving yourself a hard time. So again, take it easy on yourself. Go easy on yourself. You're worth it. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to Word Salad Rep for episode nine ninety seven. I'll see you in your ears next week.
2: 10 t scanning complete. Enjoy your
0: burrito. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them. Every week, I speak to someone new, stories like Justin Wolverton's, a lawyer who just wanted a healthy alternative to ice cream. So he created Halo Top,